0: Welcome to another episode of the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross.
1: And I'm Cara Porval.
0: We're using a new service. You'll hopefully notice a little bit higher quality uh, with the second season of the Radical Parenting Podcast. I'm also in our new facilities here at the Open Media Foundation. We're in uh, a a new building. So uh, it's a a new day for the Radical Parenting Podcast. And we're excited to bring you uh, a new book called The Eight Concepts of... Bowen theory by Roberta M. Gilbert, MD. It's a pretty quick and easy read, but has a lot of stuff and a lot of concepts that I honestly had never been exposed to before. Anything you want to say before we jump into to the first concept, Kara?
1: Um, just that this, um, I guess, so it's Murray Bowen is the man's name. And this is also called family systems theory or Bowen family systems theory. I wasn't quite sure how that all connected when I started reading this, but we weren't reading Bowen himself, we were reading this sort of summary of his concepts by Patricia Gilbert. Great. And I say that because I wasn't always sure what was the author's spin on things and what was pure Bowen. Mm -hmm. So there's some pretty rich stuff in here that I'd like to learn more about and go like directly to some of Bowen's writings and see like, what did, what did he say? And what is the other people who practice this style of therapy and coaching their spin on it?
0: Yeah. And it looks like there's been a lot of testing his theses uh, since I read about one from university of Kansas that did uphold some of his theories, because he does kind of oversimplify things here and there, and, uh, and I wanted some data to back it up. So I, I did look, and it did seem like most of his assertions have kind of held up over time. So let's jump into it. All right. So the first concept is this nuclear family emotional system. And to me, it was really just kind of an introduction, the idea, just this concept that a family is interconnected, <laughs> and that th- they also introduce a lot of their terminology. So they refer to all emotion as anxiety, even positive emotion, negative emotion, stress, whatever. They refer to it all as anxiety and define feelings as anxiety that has been identified. So often in like radical honesty, we'll just say like, what are the sensations I'm noticing? I'm feeling tightness in my throat. I'm feeling wetness in my eyes. I'm feeling pain in my sinuses. This is sadness. I feel like crying.
1: Yeah. I have a couple things. Like I like this idea of anxiety being infectious. I think she actually uses that word. Um, When we have the emotional unit, when we're together in this emotional unit of the family, that one person's stress and anxiety travels to other members of the group. And I think that's the really big takeaway here is that that's what makes it a unit, that's what makes a family a family is that we have this connection where our anxiety travels within the system and um there's of course there's acute like anxiety where there's a sort of present stress or danger or or stressor
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and then there's the chronic anxiety which is what gets passed down generation to generation and i'm really interested in that because i'm trying to say this and not a um
2: Condemning way that sounds way. like
1: I'm hating on myself yeah. <laughs> in a non condemning way. Yeah, exactly. I've often wondered what is wrong with me because I had a fairly great childhood, like my parents were responsible and attentive and loving. And I got deep into therapy by the time I was in definitely in college, and um, have been in it ever since. And I keep thinking, why am I not a person who just is sort of like happy living my life, whatever. And I'm like, I'm really into you know, therapy and personal growth and plumbing the depths of my own, you know, psyche and whatever. And I think that I did inherit a lot of anxiety from my parents. That wasn't really part of my childhood, but I sort of inherited their childhoods, mm. you know, especially my mom had a pretty traumatic childhood and a, and a pretty damaging family environment. And somehow that her sort of chronic anxiety crept down into my system. So yeah, I'm very interested in, in this. The other thing I took away from it is, he talks about this togetherness force that we seem to as animals, as like mammals. We have this natural tendency to want to group together in times of stress or danger. So there's like this protective element, right? Of being with people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What I love about this concept here is that this togetherness, there's a protective aspect and there's a restrictive aspect. And that's what we're kind of really getting at, right? Is that how do we be together and get all those benefits of togetherness without it being too restrictive, mm-hmm. where we're losing ourselves to the group,
2: mm-hmm. where
1: we give up parts of ourselves for the sake of the cohesion of the group? or for approval or whatever. So he talks a lot about fusion. When we get like too much fusion in a family unit, then that togetherness itself breeds more anxiety and stress because we tend to give up pieces of ourselves. We tend to take on repetitive patterns of behavior and interacting that are in themselves stressful because they're sort of like not genuine. So I'm very interested in this whole Togetherness as a protective force and a restrictive force. And like that's what we're dealing with with our children. We're trying to protect them. We want to take good care of them. And we don't want them to have to give up pieces of themselves in order to function in the family
2: unit.
0: Yeah, it's a real balance. And the second concept kind of introduces the, the other side of the coin to that fusion that you're talking about, which is good in some ways, but in general, if it's, if it's overdone, it's presented in, in this book as, as negative. And the, the other side of the coin is differentiation. So concept number two is the differentiation of self-scale. So people on a lower level of this scale have less differentiation, more codependency, more of that fusion that Kara is mentioning they tend to be less resilient to stressors and more reactive or prone to base decisions, to base their decisions on the transient feelings that are going through their lizard brain and less reacting and making decisions out of their kind of rational thinking prefrontal cortex. So it says that higher scale families with this higher differentiation of self scale, they promote autonomy, they're less anxious uh, with their children being individuals separate from themselves less anxious about questions, explanations, creative ventures, and variation and difference in general. So in this higher differentiation, we're not talking about like abandoning your children or totally letting them go. It's the children are given enough protection for their realistic needs, but not too much protection nor too little focus. And eventually they emerge less fused into this family emotionally, freer to be an individual and a self. Partly that means they're freer to know what they think independent of their systems. And it means that they reach adulthood with more self available to themselves instead of tied up in the group's emotional demands. Uh, So they're not just always responding, oh, who's who's upset about this, who's upset about that, but really able to be more focused on their own needs. And Bowen says, or or at least this book says they have more life energy to deal with life's challenges, reach their goals and create their own nuclear units relatively free of anxiety. I liked this chapter. I like this concept a lot. I have a lot more notes on it, but wanted to wanted to pass it to you for a bit.
1: Yeah, it seems to be this differentiation of self concept seems to be the crux of like the whole Bowen theory it's like what we're after is to reach a higher level of differentiation and in this theory it sounds like I, I almost found it a little too simplified it was sort of like well the more differentiated you are the more successful you are in life in every way right like in relationships and your health
2: career, and your career everything mm-hmm.
1: so yeah they, it, it seems to be that this is like the big goal to reach higher levels of differentiation and um It does, it does really, from a radical honesty perspective, this really jives, I think with radical honesty, I would call Brad Blanton, you know, the founder of radical honesty, who wrote the book and wrote radical parenting and does all the workshops, he's got to be one of the most differentiated people that I have ever met when you say, yeah, I mean, he's got a way where he knows this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. This is what I believe. And he's very attentive to like, he's he's always amazing observer. So I think he's probably all, always adjusting, but he doesn't really change according to what someone else believes or what someone else wants, or there's this sort of strength of self mm-hmm. that I find really appealing and that's what i really want for my for my child too they use the terms um basic self and the pseudo self or the functional self so the basic self is like the solid self and i i like this quote here this is what i am and who i am and what i will do or not do that's what reminded me so much of brad blandon Mm -hmm. They talk about guiding principles. So this solid self Mm
2: -hmm. is not
1: trying to please or or fit in or whatever. It, It really is guided by principles. She's careful to say that are examined and tested in real life and, mm-hmm.
0: and open, capable to, open of, of to changing change. Mm-hmm. based on rational information, as opposed to based on kind of knee jerk reactions, emotional responses and reactivity.
2: I
1: cringed a little bit every time they talk in the book about the emotional intellectual
2: Dichotomy. Dichotomy.
1: Yeah, they talk about um, that people who are more fused in relationships are also tend to be more fused in their emotional and intellectual capacities. So they're not able to differentiate between, you know, thinking something through in an intellectual way and and problem solving versus this emotional reactivity. And I think when they say feeling or emotional, they really just mean reactivity. And in radical honesty, we don't, I think radical honesty is all about reactivity and, and working with reactivity to move through it and let it come and go and then you do get your faculties back on the other side and your intellectual ability to problem solve and all that stuff. But the reactivity itself, I wouldn't call that emotion. In radical honesty, we talk about more about that coming from the mind actually, that the reactive mind is the one that makes up stories and interpretations. It's the meaning making mind, right? It's like the machinations of the mind. That's where the reactivity comes from and it can play out in our, in our emotions and our sensations. But I got the feeling from this book that they sort of have intellect and logic and reason up here and like emotion and feeling down here, which I think is dangerous.
0: I liked the distinction in the book. Um, I do think emotions are very valuable and need to not be like, you know, treated as like second class citizens in our mental space. But I also know how unsettling and stressful a life is when your decisions and actions are at the whim of reactivity and our emotions. For me, they're less steadfast than my rational thoughts. You know, like in my life, a few different times, I've tried to like take stock of like what I want my life to be about, for example, who and how I want to be those things are subject to change, but they, they're much more consistent. And like from moment to moment, because of my emotions, I don't act in accordance with with that at all times. Yeah. But I kind of liked the distinction. It's it's all definitely from the mind, but I kind of like to think of it in an oversimplified way as different parts of the mind where the rational thoughts about like who and how I want to be, what, what kind of relationship do I want to have? You know, what are the core values in my relationship? What are the primary motivators in my relationships in my life? Those come from... Rational thinking and from data and from meditation and from thought, whereas most of my most of my emotions, I think, come from a whole different (laughs) part of my brain, you know, my hippocampus.
1: Maybe that's that's where I'm having more problem with the distinction, because I do like the distinction between reactivity and the more calm, connected state, which I don't necessarily think is logic and reason like I think we could call that instead of thinking or intellectual thing, we could call it noticing, right? Like, so when we're talking about feeling versus fact, facts don't always come from logic, right? They come from noticing, Mm -hmm. they come from actually noticing. So like, I think Brad would say that our very best guidance system isn't necessarily our intellectually thought out values and principles, but our very best guidance system is our noticing being that's actually t- using our senses to take in information and that something spontaneously arises out of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what I'm going for anyway. is It's like not necessarily that I'm going to sit down and write out these are my logically reasoned guiding principles, but that those guiding principles are going to spontaneously arise when we are regulated in our nervous system. I mean, that's what this sounds like to me when they talk about feeling versus fact and reactivity versus logic. It's like, what I think they're actually talking about is, are you activated? Are you in an activated place in your nervous system, reactive and, and automatic, or are you in that safe, calm, connected, regulated place in your Hmm. nervous system? Yeah. Let me say real quick why I'm even, I'm sort of obsessed with this idea right now. It goes back to that anxiety being infectious thing. So I'm thinking, well, what actually works? Like what actually works for me in my body, in my mind, in my life to, to be more regulated, more calm and connected for my own sake. And so that I am a more effective parent. And that I think doesn't come necessarily from intellect you know, she does talk a little bit about, she says, you know, if our goal as parents is to broadcast less anxiety into the family unit and to take less of it on, right, is to regulate ourselves. And she talks about, right, you know, doing meditation or physical things to actually regulate that anxiety and also to work with our own parts of ourselves with our family of origin, which is another big radical honesty thing.
0: Like Kara said, there's this kind of core self that either is encouraged and expressed and investigated and you have the time and energy to look at that like you would if you're kind of highly differentiated. Or if you don't have a lot of time, that core self is kind of smaller because you haven't had a lot of time to develop it and develop your own beliefs. And instead, there's a bigger part of yourself that is what they refer to as the pseudo self where the majority of your beliefs and your principles are acquired through this relationship system and like whatever you're dealing with in the moment. They're facts that are learned because you're supposed to know them, beliefs that are borrowed from others or accepted in order to enhance your position in the family, the church, whatever. I mean, for me, I just know that a lot of my basic ideas about what I want my relationship with my son to be like, what I want any romantic relationships I'm in to be kind of at their core, And this idea that I've said a few times during the podcast that I want my life to be about maximizing joy and minimizing suffering for anyone that can experience anything that can experience joy and suffering. Those weren't inherited for me. Those are ideas that came from me just thinking and thinking not in a reactive way, thinking not in a triggered sense, but thinking about what do I want my life to be about? You know, luckily, I wasn't indoctrinated into any real like church or something like that. So my life wasn't automatically about just following in my father's footsteps in some way, or I kind of was raised to believe that there isn't a universal goal, that we all get to create our goals in life. I think one thing that, if, that goes back to what you were saying, Emerson has that great quote that says like, whether through a healthy garden patch or through a happy child or through like a redeemed social condition to leave the world a little better than you found it, that's, that's a successful life. I, I've always really liked that quote. And when you're talking about like the part of yourself that you can trust the most isn't your rational prefrontal cortex thinking, it's actually your noticing. I agree, but I think that like only certain senses of the kind of life I want to lead can be achieved in that way. Like a redeemed social condition can't really often be tackled through just noticing. It requires an analysis of social conditions. It requires an analysis of the world. It requires co-hearted what brad likes to call and others call uh, co-hearted co-intelligent collaboration where you find other people that have similar kind of life goals and similar interests and tackling kind of like complex issues so i think that's the part of a highly differentiated and what in this book they call even like a successful life is about does that make sense
1: yeah yeah and i i think what bowen theory and maybe brad blanton would agree on is like That we don't really get there we don't get to that place where we can use our very best faculties to make the world world better until we deal with our reactivity Mm -hmm. that we 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 have to deal with our reactivity and anxiety and our relationship fusions and stuff like that before we can have like the energy and the and the capacity to be creative and and thoughtful and proactive and and all of that
2: yeah
0: I've lived my whole life around what I would call activists. It's, it's, you know, I went to early kind of like WTO protests, all my work in media and just always maybe been drawn to social justice or the underdog. I don't really know what, where it came from, but I've definitely met people in my life who you can tell their activism is about a bone to pick. It's about like something that they just haven't resolved. And sometimes it's a great motivator, but it's, it strikes me as miserable. And and I want to be about people who are who are about like being called towards something being called forth.
1: Right. So that reactivity can, it's like, where do we where we choose to point our intellectual capacities, you know, for problem solving, we could do that on anything, right? Like we could become physicists or psychologists or parents or whatever like but how do we choose like how do Mm -hmm. we choose what we're going to work on yeah and is it going to be a reactive choice or is it a more you know creative coming from the solid self kind of choice yeah it's almost like in talking about parenting i'm sort of thinking in my mind like huh what does any of this have to do with parenting and it's like in talking about parenting we're basically talking about like what is a good life and what is, it, what is a happy and successful life? How do we even define that, you know, mm-hmm. in order to give our children what we think is a happy or successful life?
0: And what's the answer for you, especially in regards to Elsie Jane?
1: I don't know if I have a great answer. I wouldn't necessarily say happiness, hmm. but I would say freedom in a sense of having the trust and the confidence to be able to ride the waves of whatever life provides and the freedom to be creative and expressive and find one's own way without a lot of stuff getting in the way, without a lot of shoulds or expectations or getting in the way. The ability to really follow one's own impulses and be attuned to something greater than oneself being in the flow of, you know, life or grace or whatever, whatever, yeah. you want I call it. I did
0: an episode with Etain O'Kane a little while back, a few episodes back, and she talked about how important she thinks it is to like be deliberate about like, what do you want your relationship with your child to be about? I think those kinds of decisions that you make and that kind of like thought process you just had and, and could continue is so useful because day to day, you know, when you're facing stressors, when you're in in a hurry, when whatever, you're not going to have that stuff in mind. And the more simple you can get this idea that like my relationship with my daughter is about her freedom and her her self-expression, I, I'm oversimplifying what you said. but. The more simple you can get that, the easier it is to remind yourself of that. I've never really wanted to get married all that much, although I I do want a life partner. But when I did talk about like getting a wedding ring with my with my baby's mother, who's we're no longer together. But I wanted a ring that would remind me of that commitment. You know, I'm stressed, I'm, I'm triggered, I'm in a hurry, whatever. And I'm out of alignment with this idea of whatever these core things are that you want in your relationship. For me, in that relationship, it was, it was complete acceptance and it was non-withholding. So I wanted a ring that had something on there, whether it was an engraved word or a material that reminded me of that or whatever that would remind me what I'm committed to in the simplest ways that I can wrap my head around even when I'm triggered, even when I'm in a reactive state. I just think that's so important as parents to do with your children, too. And to even have that conversation with your children, to create that with your children. Yeah, yeah. When I did the Landmark Forum the first time, I've done a a bit of Landmark stuff. It's been about 10 years. But the Landmark Forum leader mentioned that he and his family, uh, two or three kids and his wife, they came up with this commitment together. Like, what is our family about? (laughs) And the kids had a big say in generating that. And what they came up with, led largely by his kids, is everyone has to have fun all the time. (laughs) And so uh, and so he loved it. He said it's been like working really well for them and he feels like it might evolve over time and change as his kids get older. as like it gets tried in the crucible of life. But I really like that idea. And I think as soon as my son is old enough to have conversations like this with me, I want I want to co-create that with him. Yeah. Well, cool. it gives me a little shivers in my face just to think of that.
1: Yeah. I have one more thing to say about this differentiation. This whole thing about relationship fusions, I think we would basically call that codependency, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, from a radical honesty perspective, like this is what we're working on in, in workshops and radical honesty, yeah, we could learn a lot more. I'm sure we could read volumes on like, what is self differentiation? Mm-hmm. What I'm, how I'm defining it in my head, being a radical honesty, you know, person is what I've learned in radical honesty is that when somebody else is having an experience, even if they're mad at me, if someone else has a feeling, it doesn't mean I did something wrong or that I'm responsible for making it go away. Mm-hmm. Like, And that everybody, when we're actually honest with each other and share what's really going on inside, there's a lot more variation than what we're used to seeing, Mm -hmm. right? Like in most social settings, people pretty much um, match each other a little bit more. And in radical honesty, when we're really being telling the truth, we learn that like five different people will have five different reactions to the same thing. Yeah. and that every person's experience is like totally valid, and it is what it is, and we're there to um, notice it, see it, accept c- it,
0: be connected,
1: and that we are actually mm-hmm. feel that we actually feel more connected mm-hmm. when we are totally sitting with those differences mm-hmm. and realizing that. You know, if I have an experience that somebody else doesn't have, it doesn't make mine wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's this sort of independence of, like, um, whatever's happening is real and valid, doesn't have to match up with anyone else's. So I'm think, I, I'm sort of thinking of differentiation in terms of that, of, like, whatever's actually happening is... That's what is there for me.
0: Yeah. And for people who don't know that much about radical honesty, they might be getting the wrong impression from what Kara is saying, because it's kind of easy to do what Kara is saying when you just like, just people say like dive bomb or just like, you know, like spew your opinions and separate. <clears throat> when you're really disconnected from someone, it's easy to not take on their feelings. And that's what a lot of people kind of think of sometimes as radical honesty. They think of it as like brutal honesty. Like, I'm going to tell you my, my opinions and, and run away or something like that. But the trick is being connected, being like truly connected with someone and having that differentiation. Being able to be with them, being able to really get what they're going through, really get their pain, really get their anger, really get what's going on for them, and still have that differentiation—that's the trick that we're up to with with radical honesty and with the practice that that we do. And it's also, I think, the trick that they were talking about here in, in Bowen theory. It's not just like, oh yeah, you've got your thing going on. It's not. It's not my problem, It's not my fault. You've got your thing, you go deal with it. It's um,
2: yeah. It's,
0: yeah, like being truly connected and differentiated.
1: There's a quote from the beginning of chapter two where um, I can't remember if there was if this was Bowen himself or not, but that the, the highly differentiated person takes part in relationship without giving up self or taking on the other so that's what we're going for with our children right it's like we want to be really close we want to be intimate we want to be connected but without like fusing or merging where my child has to take on give up part of their self or take on my stuff in order to be in contact with me
0: good we could end the podcast now that's the practice
1: done see you next time
0: practice it's being there it's being fully connected fully getting those feelings but without taking it on and without giving up what is also your own, your own experience. Yeah. So great. All right. So the third concept yes. almost, Yeah. making good progress. The third concept is something <laughs> I hadn't thought of, but it makes so much sense. I mean, so much of this makes sense in terms of like evolutionary psychology, that like we are, we are evolved as a species. If we were all just like a rock and an island, like the Paul Simon song, the people who are really programmed to be that way didn't do well. Like one of our advantages, one of all, most animals' advantages is our ability to collaborate and help each other build and stay warm and share food and whatever else. So we are evolved to to collaborate, in my opinion. And so when two people have a tension between them, this, the third concept is this idea of triangles and triangulation. and. Uh, that when there's tension between two people they'll seek out a third uh, a third to kind of like help resolve this tension between them. Anything you want to yeah. say about this concept again, it was new to me, and i I really liked yeah.
1: it yeah, one of the big things that one of the main triangles that they talk about, you know and he says triangles are everywhere, you know in a family of four there's like eight different triangles. I don't know if that's the right number, but he's like, triangles are everywhere. You can't get away from them. They're, they're in the family, in the workplace, in the organizations, they're everywhere. But one of the big ones that they talk about is the child focus triangle, where, you know, if, if the family system is, is, is not so differentiated and anxiety is freely transferring from one person to another, one of the parents will come in upset or anxious or whatever, the other parent will take that on and then the child will take it on and you know they talk about over time when someone has chronic anxiety going on that eventually they will start to show symptoms and they could be physical symptoms or behavior symptoms or but that there will be like a physical manifestation of this chronic anxiety and that so then let's say the child is taking on the anxiety from the parents and then starts to show symptoms, then the parents get more worried and anxious and focused on the child. Like what's wrong with the child? So it becomes this situation where they're sort of a problem child, but it's not really coming from them. If the the parents work on their own stuff, the child's situation can clear up pretty quickly is what they say. so I'm real interested. I've seen this with families that I that I teach. I've seen this where the the parents seem overly anxious or concerned about their child to the point where it becomes this like the child gets this complex about that there's like something different or wrong about me. And there's like not. They're totally normally no normal kids. So what I took away from this in terms of the child focus triangle is that, you know, it's really best for our kids if we don't worry about them so much. And think that every little thing they do is significant in terms of being, you know, a possible in terms of being fearful about it, right? Like yeah. thinking, oh, they're gonna turn out this way because they said this when they were five. Or, you know, that that like to really take most of what children do no matter how wild or wacky it is, it's like really natural and normal. Yeah. It's just so much of the time we get all worked up about something that is like totally normal and natural and developmentally appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean that's been drilled into us. I mean, we've now read over like twenty books. It's been repeated in several wow. of them. It's like a normal, very normal situation for parents to like think of every situation it's like oh my god this my child's now going to be a serial killer or they're going to be a narcissist or they're going to be whatever like and we can't help it i can't help it you can't we can't help it but we just need to have that other voice reminding us like no this is this is a phase everything is you know it's all means to an end there are no ends so yeah good i'm glad you brought that up so the fourth concept, um, is kind of the, the, again, the other side of the coin of what we talked about with being with and being connected to people, letting them have their experience, still not giving up your own or t- fully adopting theirs. Um, is this idea of cutoff is, is concept number four. So I'm going to read a quote. I think, it's, I think it's actually from Bowen. It says, over time, cutoff creates anxiety. In the long term, anxiety sets in in the form of depression or other symptoms. It will not be seen as related to the cutoff from family. In the first place, the cutoff feels good. But secondly, the symptoms onset is often far removed in time from the beginning of the cutoff. So the logical connection is not made. Um, And they talked about um, that there were studies of cutoff uh, at the University of Moscow and and found that people that had these high tendencies for cutoff just didn't do well. so yeah, this is kind of like you're so wrapped up in this family tension, but you haven't learned that differentiation. The the, the book says like then you can stay in the family and that's not healthy, or you can cut off from the family and that's not healthy either. The healthy way is to is to acknowledge those differences. And I know this was a hard one for me to read because um, because the mother of my son is is kind of a pro at this cutoff uh thing and so we haven't really spoken in a long time not resolved any of our issues i don't even really know why we aren't speaking so it's a it's a it was a it was a tough chapter for me to read but uh, yeah but a really inter- you know interesting and important concept i think
2: yeah
1: and the i think we have an idea in our culture that you can get rid of the problem by just like not talking to a we, we like to label other people as the problem and say that, well, if I just don't talk to them or see them anymore, then the problem goes away. But it doesn't, you know, because the reason we wanted to cut off in the first place is because we had too much discomfort and anxiety going on that we couldn't resolve. And so um, cutting off, doesn't remove all that anxiety right so we have to actually and this is what i think radical honesty is great at so a lot of people may not know this if you haven't been to a workshop but in radical honesty one of the main big things that that people do to get um you know more freedom and 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 happiness in their life is to go back and complete unfinished business with, with family members, especially parents, but really anyone, it could also be, you know, ex-partners or siblings or, you know, any of that, any historical relationships or family of origin stuff to go and talk face to face with the person that that is the last person that you want to talk to,
2: um,
1: has these huge advantages.
0: It's no wonder that that step isn't unique to, to radical honesty. You know, 12-step programs, all kinds of programs have that step. It's an important piece because, yeah, we, we carry that baggage around with us, all this unfinished business, and we just keep, keep, keep reliving it over and over again until we just yeah, go back to the source and try, and try and process, try and integrate. I mean, that's part of us, that history, yeah. that pain. is part awesome.
1: of us. Yeah, so by cutting off, we're not actually resolving the unresolved attachment or fusion or whatever, um, which then also creates its own anxiety. Um, so I, you know, and, and he, oh, this actually takes us into the next, no, it's not the next one.
2: Well, let's Later do, let's on, do I'll go it. ahead let's and
1: Let's do it anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, well, the next one is, the family projection process, which is about how the parents' level of differentiation, whether high or low, is passed down to their children. And the really interesting thing about this is that um, the process is different for different children. So there's there's not like one family and all the children like turn out this certain way or have this certain experience, but it's as if every Child is living in a different family. It's there. Um, let's see if I can find the good quote for
0: it. One is the more the child is on the receiving end of like overprotection of an of a worried, overprotected parent, the greater the anxiety tr- transmitted, and thus fusion of self with parent. Um, and they aren't promoting neglect. They're promoting like deliberate, intentional differentiation and autonomy, and. You know one of the stories that was so heartbreaking for me in this chapter was the story of Flo and Flint the jane goodall story do do you remember that?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let me just tell that really quick so so this yeah. this matriarch of this chimp um community that that Jane Goodall had been following uh her name was Flo, and she had raised. She was a total leader in the chimp community. She'd raised a whole bunch of kids. They had all been also kind of like prominent leaders, like alphas or whatever, in this chimp community. And as she got much, much older, she, she her last child, uh, Jane Goodall, named Flint. And um, she, had, she was kind of old and tired by the time she had this one and she kept attached to him much longer. He rode on her back longer than her previous kids. Um, and when, he, when she died, when Flo died, Flint wouldn't leave the spot where she died, and he died himself there three weeks later. Wow. It was such a heartbreaking story to read. And such a good, like, illustration of this. I mean, certainly overblown, but, um, but that level of attachment didn't serve Flint and doesn't serve our kids is the point of that story. Yeah. And they wrote in there that it's just so essential that as parents we learn to process our anxiety as individuals instead of passing it on to our kids. And that often the child that's receiving the most attention in the family has the lowest differentiation and the greatest struggles. One last quote is, often as parents become more involved in their own pursuits, resolving instead of projecting their own anxiety and working on their own relationships, a child will behave like a bird let out of the cage, dropping their symptoms and showing better development. And this reminded me of when my mom, when my mom got divorced and was going through, like, a really tough time in my childhood. Um... Well, here, I'll, I'll differentiate my, my stepmom, who I love, I have a lot of respect for. But when she was, you know, in a new marriage, I remember her saying things to her daughter, like, if you don't go to the movies with me, you know, she's really dependent on her daughter. I'm, I'm not going to do anything nice for you for one week or something like that. When my mom went through the divorce, she she read a bunch, she she would play more guitar. She played more piano. She bought herself a sailboat and went went taught herself to sail and went sailing alone in Denver where there are no lakes, <laughs> Chatfield Reservoirs or whatever. Um, and I didn't appreciate that stuff as a kid. I didn't I didn't know how like healthy that was that my mom what her whole life wasn't about making me lunches and showing up to my sporting event she had all this other great stuff going on
2: yeah i
1: actually thought of your mom what you had said about her in an earlier episode when i was reading this you know there was one episode where you were like my mom was like a cool person she read lots of books she was into music she played the guitar like she had all this going on for herself and um that's you know that's inspiring to me Cause I do reading this, I worry a little bit because my daughter is an only child and um, being a single parent, you know, she's either our family unit is me and her two people, just us, or she's with her dad at his house and their family unit is those two people. And um, he and I are on really good terms and we occasionally will hang out the three of us, very rare though. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do how do I not over focus on her like she's already an only child and um, I will say I think I have a pretty rich life, you know, outside of being mm-hmm. a parent and mm-hmm. I'm sure I could do do even more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It just feels like a little bit of a balance beam of like I want to be super close with her. I do not want to be I do not want to get in the way of her differentiating or whatever I want. Mm-hmm. I want to be really intimate. Yeah. And and so it feels like this, oh, God, how do I do this? Like balancing act, you know, totally. I don't have you know all the answers to that.
0: That's great. Kara and I are in a, is it monthly or, or twice a month? We do a kind of like coaching session where we go through any, any challenges we're having in our radical honesty coaching. And I took a note of this one. One of the other trainers, Christoph, who might one day be on the workshop, he mentioned how his struggles and his eight-year-old doing homework during our coaching call. Usually it's about coaching around, you know, a client that you're seeing. But in this case, he asked about like help around this anxiety and tension he felt with his, with his son and, and his like inability to help his son do homework. And I loved that the whole focus, all the advice he got from any other trainers, I don't even know if Brad chimed in, but was just like, just focus on your own anxiety, your own tension, and understand that, and then share it with your son honestly and directly. So it, the alternative is it comes out like all indirectly. You're trying to control him, or you tell him, you know, like, like you're never going to go to college if you don't finish this homework assignment, or, you know, who knows what what will come out, but that was the feedback from the radical honesty community for him. And that's definitely the feedback for this chapter or this concept in the Bowen theory is that, is that we need to, we need to resolve and process and deal with these things internally so that they don't come out in unhealthy ways.
1: Yeah. And that even when our child is doing some behavior that looks like it's over there in their court, that, it might actually be our own anxiety that yeah. has sort of traveled to them and is coming out in in wacky ways.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so with um, with concept number six, do you want to talk about this multi multi generational thing, or read that read that part of the um, quote that you highlighted, or multi
1: generational transmission process, which I really think this is just a expansion of the last one, which was that family projection process. Um, Here's the quote from Bowen, in any nuclear, sorry, here it is, the family projection process continues through multiple generations. In any nuclear family, there is one child who is the primary object of the family projection process. This child emerges with a lower level of differentiation than the parents and does less well in life. Other children who are minimally involved with the parents emerge with about the same levels of differentiation as the parents those who grow up relatively outside the family emotional process develop better levels of differentiation than the parents. So if you follow the most impaired child through successive generations, um, we'll see one line of descent producing lower and lower levels of differentiation, et cetera, et cetera. If you follow the multi-generational, oh my God. Multi-generational lineage of those who emerge with higher levels of differentiation differentiation we will see a line of highly functioning and very successful people. So he's just saying it continues generation after generation after generation.
0: And this was the theory that I looked up some research on from University of Kansas that seemed to it did like 80 families or something like that over years. So it seems to seems to hold true. But let's jump to the seventh concept. So this was another one like I've never been a huge fan of like categories, Myers-Briggs or, or personality types or Enneagram. I mean, I, I read about it. I love it all, but, but I, I take it with kind of a grain of salt. And this was one that I would never heard of before, and it makes so much sense to me. And again, it's not just like tried and true, and they seem to present it as a little bit too, too accurate in the same way Enneagram and, and others do, but it's all about sibling position. So concept number seven is about how people relate to other people in the world based on their their sibling position
1: if you were the oldest or the youngest and also if you were let's say an older brother of sisters versus an older sister of brothers or an older where, brother and they of have brothers whole, or, mm-hmm. right and like this almost personality description for like every single one of those types did you like I your didn't personality totally description? Buy into it mine i will say i mean according to my mom she says that as the youngest, so I was the youngest sister of a sister. She did say that like I I tended to be very accommodating, mm-hmm. like almost so much that she was worried about me because I would always give in or let my sister have what she wanted and that my sister was the more dominant one. So we followed the the template in that in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: now like in my relationship with my daughter's dad, he was the older, oldest child. I was the youngest child, and we had the totally opposite
2: mm-hmm. power
1: dynamic in our relationship, mm. um, where I was the, you know, bossy one, for lack mm. of a better word, and he was the, you know, I guess underfunctioning one. You could say I was the overfunctioning one, and he was the underfunctioning one. Mm. Um, so I didn't really, I don't really fit it as an adult. And they do say the higher your level of differentiation of self the less you're going to fall right into the mold of your sibling yeah. position.
0: I thought mine was a reasonably good description in the same way I felt okay. like my Enneagram type and my Myers-Briggs are, are reasonably good. It's not uh-huh. spot on, um, but yeah. several aspects of it were spot on. And then a little bit of it was in, in some ways off target. But they not only yeah. talk about your personality traits, like like Kara just said, they talk about how you fit with others. So it, it, again, in my, my relationship with the mother of my son, uh, I'm the youngest son of of old of an older sister. She's the oldest sister of younger sisters, so they talk both about the kind of gender and the power dynamics. Um, and in this one, they say that you know a, a younger brother of an older sister will have often better understanding. Like the young, will the younger brother of an older sister will confuse sometimes an older sister of younger sisters because she can't relate to me in the way she did to her younger sisters. Um, and so it, it'll often result in the younger brother having more of an understanding of her because of his past relationship with his older sister than she would have of him because of her past relationship with her younger sisters. So for me, that one yeah. felt felt very true. My ex hadn't grown, yeah, up, yeah. grown up with brothers and didn't... Um, you know, we had some we had some trouble understanding each other.
1: Yeah, it makes sense, you know, if you grow up in a family with all siblings of your same sex or siblings of opposite sex, you know, that that would make a difference later. You know, sibling position is also really important in Adlerian psychology. Mm. And they have positions for oldest, youngest, and middle children. So this is interesting here, um, and this is apparently based on Walter Toman, who did, came up with all this sibling position mm-hmm. typography that Bowen got um, sort of adopted. Well,
0: we're almost at our hour. We're trying to keep this one to yeah. an hour. Um, and so anything else about concept seven before we go to eight and final? No. Yeah, okay. let's go on. Karen, I didn't love concept number eight. Uh, it was kind of the weakest for us. But the thing I did like about it is he tried to kind of like extrapolate this to society.
1: Yeah, so the, the concept is, they're saying the same, the emotional process in society, that in society as a big culture, we're all we also anxiety travels amongst the culture, and that there can be societal regression based on, you know, having too much anxiety spreading around the the culture. So what was so funny, I think for us is that, The author writing this book, and I don't know if it's Bowen himself, seemed to be quite conservative in terms of like social mores and whatever. And we're so not, right? Like in the radical honesty community, like we consider, you know, sexual freedom a positive thing. And, you know, like the 60s, they talked about the 60s being this huge social regression, you know, and in my eyes, it's more like, a social revolution, like you know, advancement, right, um, coming out of the '60s. So, uh, the this last chapter did get a little hairy for us in that we're just not giving the same judgments to, to some of the same things. But I can I I can see though, like how things like technology, media. Um, you know, she even talks about economic inequality, overcrowding in cities, that there's, there's a lot going on in our society as a whole, that creates anxiety. I mean, I think, for me, I I think I feel a lot more anxiety, having so much overstimulation and so much information all the time, you know, and um, there's awesome parts about that too, right, like, amazing parts about that. And if i listen to too many podcasts, you know, like too many days in a row, my, my head starts to fry, right? And um so anyway, she goes on to say that the there's some specific ideas, i don't know if we want to go into that or not, that there's specific ideas that are sort of <laughs> infecting our culture and making more anxiety and giving us a social regression, which we don't necessarily agree with, right? we want a parent from a place of our guiding principles, whatever those are, not from a place of anxiety and, and fear.
0: Yeah. So in this chapter, they argue that, that societies go through these cycles of being more or less, more or less anxious and, and or orderly or organized. And one of the things I really liked is they said that whether it's in personal situations or kind of like in, in um, macro scale, that it causes more pain to avoid anxiety than to deal with it, and that the way out is to step out of our reactivity and to make decisions based on principle. Uh, one of the quotes was, "I won't continue this irresponsible behavior. This is what I believe. This is what you can expect from me." And they did kind of like four steps of of what of what that would be here in chapter eight or, or concept eight. Uh, the first step is learning the facts, focus on kind of like objective information rather than just your subjective reactivity. Number two was learn to think systems. So this whole Bowen system is about a system to help you get out of these patterns of of multigenerational reactivity and anxiety. Um, under heightened anxiety, people lose sight of the big picture, and systems thinking like this helps you helps you take the steps that that you need. Um, get clear on your guiding principles, learn to think according to them as opposed to through, um, you know, moment by moment pressures, and then take a stand for for those principles. So I really liked that part of this yeah. concept number eight in this final, final chapter.
1: Yeah, me too, especially this um, taking a stand. Mm-hmm. They call it taking an eye position. And this, again, really reminds me so much of Brad Blanton, our radical honesty mentor, is this, you know, we don't have that much control out here of other people. And we're not trying to control other people. We only have, we have our power comes from our own choices within our own realm, right? So like, we have a lot of power, power, just by saying, this is what I'm willing to do or not what I'm willing to do. This is what I believe. This is what I stand for. And one of the things we haven't said yet about this whole idea of systems theory is that um, it's different than cause and effect, where there's like one thing that causes and one thing that reacts in systems theory, everything interrelates and interacts. So if one person changes their steps out of the, sort of pre-programmed um, pattern the whole system changes so it's it's a little bit cliched but it's like one person taking a stand can change an organization or a society and i think a little bit of this is happening you know like we're really um, a lot more people are taking a look at institutional racism and colonialism and all of that is systems thinking right of right. where it's not isolated instances. It's not about specific people or specific personalities or specific cultures. It's like this big systems thinking of of all these interrelating pieces and learning about that gives us a better understanding from where we can um, take a stand and take an eye position. I also liked this Tony, like, this oh one of these these quotes is they they call it an I position is defining the self clearly and calmly and i that's such a good definition for me as a parent where when i find myself trying to control my daughter over here that's actually a powerless place for me i actually can't control that much about her I, my power place is saying, defining myself clearly and calmly of, this is what what I need, this is what I want, this is what I believe, this is what I'm willing to do. That's where I have power as as a parent. And where I'm role modeling for her, me expressing my, you know, solid self or, or basic self as they call
2: it.
0: Good. Well, thank you. Uh, I do recommend this again. It's, a, it's just like a system and a perspective that I hadn't encountered before, and I'm grateful. Uh, a couple friends, um, Jen and Allison, uh, suggested it to me. Um, I think they read it in their church group, uh, but it's mm-hmm. uh, neither Kara or I came to it from the religious side, um, but uh, still had a lot of lot of useful information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: thanks for recommending it, Tony. Yeah.
0: All right, well, uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we're going to jump into education and some work from Peter Gray and, and a few other people that I'm really excited about. So uh, thank you for listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast. You can hear us on the radio at Denver Open Media Radio, 92.9 FM, 89.3 HD3, or at RadicalHonesty.com, uh, or on any, any outlet where you get uh, podcasts or, or YouTube. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.
2: Bye. Ah.